You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Westwood One Podcast Network. And it is Tuesday afternoon, August the 7th. And as promised yesterday, we are going to discuss today the issue that is on all of your minds. And I know it's the issue on your mind because it's the issue for which we can't ignore on a single show, the courts. Everything gets back to the courts. You know, just today we have a story posted on how um, an Iraqi foreign national was in a shootout with Colorado Springs cops, almost killed a cop. And it turns out he should have been deported ten times over, but he wasn't. Why? Because of the courts. It always gets back to the courts. Um, And that's why, you know, rather than just hearing a layman's constitutional view, I figured I'd get a real constitutional scholar, a real legal scholar on the show. And, you know, it's our honor today to bring on Professor T. T. Fitzpatrick. Um, We found him last week at this Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on just in general, the structure of the courts, the size of the Ninth Circuit, this nationwide universal injunction business. Um, and I figured, oh my gosh, I got to have him on. He gave such a clear explanation of it. Anyway, Professor Fitzpatrick, um, he has been teaching for over 10 years at Vanderbilt Law School, uh, civil procedure, federal courts, constitutional law. Uh, he graduated first in his class from Harvard Law School, went on to clerk for Judge O'Scanlan of the Ninth Circuit. He's been in the news a lot lately. He's uh, just just retired, um, as well as clerking for Justice Antonin Scalia. Um and has obviously served in private practice, uh, many areas of complex litigation. Also did a stint um, for uh, John Cornyn on the Senate Judiciary Committee, helping out with Supreme Court nominations. So I felt what better person to bring on to help us plow through the complexity um, of, of this separation of powers crisis than Professor Fitzpatrick. Hey, Professor, are you on the line? Yes, I am, Daniel. So nice to be here. Well, thanks for taking away time from your vacation, you know, before you get back to the the new semester. Um, so I'm really honored you've taken the time today. I don't even know where to start. I could go on forever. But, you know, we'll start with the DACA opinion. Um, a lot of people are asking me, how is it that any district judge could take a national policy related to something as almost international, is immigration policy. And that judge could say that a president must continue an unprecedented policy of a previous administration to not only not deport people that pursuant to law have to be deported, but actually issue them affirmative benefits or security cards, work permits. And they're all asking me, what could we do? What could we do? How have the courts grown so powerful um, that they, they seem to be the final arbiter of every political issue. Well, you know, a lot of people are asking these questions, and they've been asked, frankly, for a long time. 
um, you know, ever uh, since uh, the Warren Court um, in the 1950s and 60s got off the ground, uh, the federal judiciary has been taking more and more power for itself and leaving less and less power in the democratically elected branches of government. And it's been a source of great consternation for judicial conservatives for a long, long time. Uh, it's really a, the backlash against that kind of aggra aggrandizement of powers, what really propelled Richard Nixon um, to try to change the courts when he was president. He didn't do a very good job. Ronald Reagan picked up the mantle, did a better job at trying to change uh, the federal court system. But, you know, federal judges, they have life tenure. They stick around for a long time. It takes a long time to change course uh, with people that stick around for 30, 40 years. And uh, even when you think you found the right people to be federal judges, because they have life tenure, uh, they can do what they want to when they get on the bench, and they may disappoint you, as many Republican nominees have, have disappointed. And so I think it's just been very difficult to find people who are willing to turn down uh, power. And uh, it's few and far between. So I guess... That really gets to the next part of the equation. So the judiciary isn't the only show in town. Uh, the founders felt that they would be comparatively the weakest branch, um, neither force nor will in the words of Hamilton. And I think the notion was that the other two branches wouldn't let that happen, just like you know, a 250-pound boxer doesn't get beaten up by a 100-pound layman uh, you know, unless he wants to be. Why is it that it seems that there's almost nothing that a court could do that will prompt the other branches of government to push back. It's almost like this concept of res judicata, finality in law that you have in civil proceedings and in, in, in criminal law is kind of transferred over to political issues where a third-party organization like ACLU, NAACP could – Get a broadly political issue in court through some sort of straw man plaintiff. I want five weeks of early voting. I don't want to have to vote um, with photo ID. I, I want to be able to do ballot harvesting. I want this type of ballot. Um, in Michigan, they now have a case of um, straight ticket ballot. You have to have straight ticket balloting, whatever it is. Um, or just, you know, let's just take the example of just yesterday, a federal district judge in the DC district said that the president can't enforce his order um, barring uh, you know, transgenders from the military. How, how do they just issue an edict like that? And it's almost like you know, Congress passes a law, the president could sign or veto it. Oh, and then it goes to a court for a veto. Weren't they just supposed to – even when they're doing judicial review, wasn't it supposed to be more cases and controversies? And if you could just speak a little bit – to how this ties into the universal injunctions. Sure, yeah. So one of the ways that the founding generation wanted to limit the power of the federal judiciary, and, and remember, the federal judiciary was supposed to be like the other branches of the federal government. They were supposed to have limited and enumerated powers. They weren't supposed to just do whatever they wanted to do. One of the ways the founding generation limited the powers of the federal judiciary was to restrict uh, their ability 
to adjudicate cases. There has to be what the Constitution refers to as a case or a controversy. Federal judges are not supposed to be issuing what are sometimes called advisory opinions. There has to be a real person who has really been injured, and they have to be seeking relief from the court that redresses that actual injury. And so that is supposed to keep the courts out of a lot of policymaking. They're just supposed to be um, adjudicating disputes between people that actually are, are injured by something. But what's happened is, and this really started in the 50s and 60s, uh, the federal district courts have started issuing relief to people who are not even parties to the case, let alone people who have demonstrated that they've suffered an actual injury as the Constitution requires. And this is this issue that you mentioned of the universal injunctions. And so what happens here is, say one state, the state of Hawaii, sues the Trump administration and says, we want to strike down, we want you, court, to strike down the travel ban that President Trump um, set forth the executive order. So if traditionally what happened is if Hawaii wins the case, then Hawaii gets an injunction that stops the defendant from doing something to Hawaii. But what's going on now is, and again, it's happened since the 50s and 60s, the judges are issuing injunctions that not, not only prevent the defendant from doing something to the plaintiff, but to prevent the defendant from doing something to anyone else in the entire country. Even though those people are not even parties to the case, even though they've demonstrated no standing, even though the plaintiff is supposed to have the ability to seek relief only to redress its own injuries, not other people's injuries, the courts have decided we're just going to issue these universal injunctions to stop the defendant from doing bad things against anyone anywhere instead of just the people that actually brought the lawsuit. And that really threatens the ability of the federal government to do what it needs to do. Because as you noted, ACLU, other groups like that, they can run and find one federal district court judge out of 700. They can go to the craziest one and they can ask that crazy one to enter a universal injunction. And if they, if this one judge wants to do it, the federal government is shut down. And, and that is a lot of power in the hands of one judge. It gives the plaintiff a lot of power to go forum shopping, find a favorable judge, and get their way. And one last thing I'll say about this, Daniel, is even though right now you know, we're not happy about this going on because sure. it's being used against the Trump administration, the exact same thing happened against the Obama administration. The uh, conservative groups would go to conservative judges and they'd get these universal injunctions. And so, you know, I think we have to be thoughtful about it and say if it's wrong now, it was wrong back then, too. <laughs> no, no, exactly. We need to be consistent. I mean, the only difference I'd say that and correct me if this is wrong historically, but it seems like what I find unique is that most not all, but most of what Trump has been doing really is just simply going back to what it was before Obama. So Obama was the one who did something that was pretty pretty out there um, to just unilaterally 
issue an amnesty that he said 22 times he couldn't do, obviously, uh, conferring positive privileges on foreign nationals. He did it. Trump, you know, all he did was just countermand that, um, you know, at least in, in this case. Or, for example, with the transgender in the military, you know, the military didn't accept them from, you know, since the beginning of time until really the last year of Obama's presidency is when he issued that order. Um and they're just saying, no, you have to offer sufficient reason why you're getting rid of it. And it just seems it seems bizarre that it's almost like – I love this term that you use from the source material in your written testimony, and I'll link to it in our show notes here, um, that nationwide injunctions create a one-way ratchet in which the law can change only against the government, not for it. Because what I noticed was that in the case of DACA – this judge Titus from my home state of Maryland, they went, you know, they went to several judges and he actually said, obviously what the government did, what DHS did was fine, but somehow that doesn't serve as a codification the way that our legal system views, um, you know, the other judge, judge Bates in this case as a, almost like a veto. Well, no, that's, that's exactly how this universal injunction system works. It's, it's crazy in many ways. So basically, there are 700 federal district court judges. 699 of them could say, no, the administration is right. But if one of them says, no, the plaintiffs are right, the administration is wrong, that one gets to trump all of the other 699. It's, it's absurd on its face, and it should not be allowed to continue. And to go back to one of your earlier points, this is something that Congress could do something about. Congress has a lot of power over the jurisdiction of the federal district courts. The federal district courts exist only by congressional grace to begin with. They're not even in the Constitution. The Constitution says Congress can create inferior courts, courts that are inferior to the Supreme Court, from time to time as Congress wishes. So they have a lot of power over district courts including their jurisdiction, and Congress could pass a statute tomorrow that said the federal district courts do not have jurisdiction to hear cases seeking a universal injunction. And I, at my hearing last week, the senators seemed interested in that idea, and so I'm hoping someone picks it up and runs with it, and we get some relief from this one-way ratchet system where we find one crazy judge and that crazy judge wins out over 699 other judges. You know, and I, I was laughing watching the hearing. It was funny um, when you mentioned this. Uh, Senator Hirono from Hawaii looked at you like you were from Mars. Are you suggesting that there is somehow um, politics on the courts? Why should it make a difference which judge they go to? I mean, just as if there's no understanding of the difference between a Trump-appointed judge and, a, and an Obama-appointed judge. Daniel, I laughed at that, too. I, I couldn't say what I wanted to say to the senator, because I didn't want to be disrespectful, but I, I wanted to ask the senator if she believed that there is no difference between a Democrat judge and a Republican judge, then is she voting for Trump's nominees in the same numbers as she voted for President Obama's nominees? I don't think so. I think that even the good senator knows there's a difference between Republican judges and Democrat judges. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is what bothers me that even some of the other members, Republican members on, of the committee, it almost looks like 
they were just befuddled by what to do. They didn't realize that Congress gets on the playing field. Um, you know, I laugh at this uh, notion that the courts kind of created the world and created the other system when it's the other way around. There's a uh, what was it last year? The um, what is it? The special federal circuit, and not the D.C. but the you know the federal circuit. Um, which yep, that's what's called United States Court of Appeals, the Federal Circuit. Yep. For, for the Federal Circuit. I always mix up the name. So um, they so-called, and I hate this term, but struck down part of a VA Accountability Act. It passed unanimously, um, you know, making it easier to fire VA employees. And I was laughing because you know, the other courts have been around for a long time, so they kind of have this prominence. But this court was created, I think, in 1982. And the notion that they could just control everything. Um, the way I read it, I, I just see, just interestingly enough, in this term, in Patrick v. Zinke, um, very in the weeds case, but it dealt with parsimoniously with with jurisdiction stripping. Uh, Clarence Thomas wrote um, that the legislative power is the power to make law, and Congress can make laws that apply retroactively to pending lawsuits, even when it effectively ensures that one side wins. And then he said. When Congress strips federal courts of jurisdiction, it exercises a valid legislative power no less than when it lays taxes, coins money, declares war, or invokes any other power in the Constitution that the Constitution grants it. I don't hear that anywhere in the law schools. You know, that's, 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 that's quite right. Um, Congress does have power to take jurisdiction away from federal courts. That doesn't mean that cases can't be heard. It just means they have to go to state courts. And they're appealed from state courts directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and so Congress has a lot of authority to do this. Congress does not exercise the authority very often because what often happens in these situations when someone's actually upset about something is there's the other side is happy with what has happened. And so I suspect it'd be very difficult for the Republicans to push through a bill right now taking away universal injunction jurisdiction because the Democrats are, are loving it. Now, a few years ago, the Democrats were hating it. So <laughs> maybe if some of them have long enough memories, they'll realize it's better for both sides to get rid of this practice. But I'm not optimistic about that. No, unfortunately, I mean, I think that's a very profound point that the founders, everything I read from how they thought the system would work, it was three branches of government checking each other. But sadly, it appears what we have now are two political parties that populate the three branches so, you know, typically the legislature they thought would be, you know, they wouldn't even let this get off the ground if the if the judiciary would um grow to such a great lengths, but you know, when you have one half of it that likes at least the political outcome of what they're doing, they they kind of stand down and I just um I I really wonder how much longer this could go on where they're just discovering new rights every day. One of my concerns and I'm curious your your comment on it, just the general trend in the federal courts, if you're you're noticing this as well. I, I saw a statistic that, I mean, typically the Supreme Court considers 80 to 100 cases per term. Obviously, they consider a little bit more just you know in terms of dispensing them real quickly, but fully hear arguments in 80 to 100 cases. Um, but that in this past term, the court took up just 60 cases, the lowest number since the Civil War, Yet at the same time, the, everyone knows the dockets of the lower courts are swelling every year. So, I mean, isn't this just another data point that 
in conjunction with the universal injunctions, we're really empowering any forum shopped court to often be the final say, or at least for many years, on an issue. Now, this is a very good point. Uh, the United States Supreme Court has been taking fewer cases for a good 20 or 30 years, it slowly drifted down. They used to take twice as many uh, cases as they take now, maybe even more than that. Uh, it slowly drifted down. And that does leave a lot of power in the lower courts, the district courts and the courts of appeals, because the Supreme Court just isn't getting involved. Now, there's been a lot of theories that have been put forward on why the court is not taking more cases. And I'm really not entirely sure myself uh, why they don't take more cases. I mean, part of it is once you get used to only 60, 70 cases a year, it's kind of hard to try to... <laughs> go back to twice as many. It's twice as much work. And so, you know, you kind of get used to the pace of a certain workload, and then it's hard for you to increase your own workload, I think. But it is it is perplexing because, you know, not only are the cases going down, but the number of law clerks they get are going up. Uh, and so they actually have more resources to handle these cases. And, and so I'm just, I, I'm a little surprised uh, that they haven't kept up a quicker pace on these things. So, yeah, I think you're right. The Supreme Court's not getting involved. So a lot of it is left to the lower courts. Because that, that that's what puts chills down my spine. I mean, there, there's one thing for a conservative constitutionalist, anyone who ex, you know ex, respects the system of government as, as it was founded, it, it's, a, it's a bitter enough pill to swallow that the Supreme Court is the final and exclusive say on all you know constitutional matters rather than co-equal co input. But, okay, at least you know let it be the Supreme Court. But you know, if if they're going to take up so many, such few cases and all these very critical, very consequential religious liberty, um, election law, immigration law, now venturing into national security, they're even venturing into fiscal policy like minimum wage and taxes. Um, you know that essentially, I fear that the ACLU or similar groups now run the country, not the Supreme Court, because they control the arc and trajectory of the litigation where it goes. Um, it takes forever to get relief from the Supreme Court, although you know that the Supreme Court would never initially rule that way. A lot of my friends are like, hey, Daniel, don't worry. This is absurd. The Supreme Court's going to overturn it. But I'm seeing that, A, they often don't get to it for a while or at all. And, and even when they do, getting back to your ratchet theory, um, I mean, look, any good lawyer could splice hairs and understands that no two cases are alike. And even after you get a categorical ruling like Trump got in the travel ban case in Trump v. Hawaii, I'm seeing a panoply of lower court cases where Judge Robart from Washington just gave standing to shoot at Trump's uh, refugee vet new vetting for 11 um, countries uh, input in order to take in refugees. And they're entertaining the argument that he's motivated by animus. And I was saying, I thought we just dealt with this. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very concerning because, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't like uh, – the Supreme Court is conservative not only politically but institutionally. They, they do not like to get involved in matters until the matters have received what the court refers to as percolation. They like legal issues to have been bounced around in the lower courts for years before they 
drop in and settle the issue because they like to see all the issues aired, all the arguments made. They like to see uh, as many different viewpoints as possible before they pick kind of the winning view in a matter. And so it does take them a long time to get involved because they want to wait for different courts to weigh in on the same issue. Now, this ties back to universal injunctions in that universal injunctions really prohibits that kind of percolation from taking place because you get the one judge that's going to issue the injunction and you typically are only going to get one court of appeals then to weigh in on the issue before someone asks the Supreme Court to weigh in. So the court may be just looking at one court of appeals and they may say, well, only one court of appeals has looked at this. We usually wait for more courts of appeals to look at it before we get involved. But with the universal injunction, it's not even possible for the courts of appeals to get involved because the government stops doing it because they're enjoined. And so it really short circuit the ability to get other courts of appeals involved. And then that makes the Supreme Court, I think, a little more reluctant to take the case because they hate to just get involved right away. They, They like to have some differences of opinion out there. And that's the concern, again, at least at present, more from a conservative political perspective, that let's take immigration, for example. I mean, this is an issue for which the justices wrote in the most emphatic terms for 130 years that over no issue of law um, does Congress have more, the political branches, government have more power. Um, there is no second guessing the political branches, you know, whatever your political view on how much or what type of immigration you want, the notion that there's a fundamental right to immigrate, that it's gestatiable, that you could do this. It, it was absurd. It, it didn't really even happen in the in the Warren era. But what you're seeing is, like you said, the the you know litigation groups will go primarily, let's say, to the Ninth Circuit. Um, get a nationwide injunction, for example, with these border separations, 70% of it is happening in Texas, but they're not going to go to a district in, in the Fifth Circuit. They, they go to the Ninth Circuit. And, you know, I, we, actually, we actually saw this with, um, you know, again, whatever your politics are, I, th- I think it's pretty clear that legally it's pretty unprecedented for a court to tell a president, you must continue Obama's amnesty, um, you know, most of us would say it's unconstitutional. At best, you'd say it's discretionary from from Obama. But certainly, to say that you must do it is pretty insane. And the um, Trump administration uh, filed an expedited motion to appeal just straight to the Supreme Court after the district judge's ruling. They said, "Look, you know the the lower courts, uh, the, the Ninth Circuit. We already know what they're going to do here." Um, but they said, "No, you'll get an expeditious appeal. Don't worry about it." And you know, every day a thousand more um, work permits are handed out to people that, pursuant to law, really shouldn't be getting it. It's almost irrevocable. I, you know, I'm just curious what you think some of the remedies are, um, and then also if you could speak about kind of dividing the Ninth Circuit and if that would have any uh, any bearings on on weakening its power. Well, you know, a lot of these. Um, cases that you're complaining about are filed in the Ninth Circuit um, because the plaintiffs know that not only we can find some district court judge somewhere to go along with what we're doing, but we have a good chance of getting it upheld by the Ninth Circuit um, because, you know, not only 
is the Ninth Circuit a very liberal circuit? We all know that. But there's there's really more danger in the Ninth Circuit than people realize for conservatives and really in some ways for, for liberals too because the Ninth Circuit is so big. It has 29 active judges. I think there's another 17 or so senior judges, over 40-some judges. The circuit decides cases with three judges. They randomly pick three judges to decide the cases. Well, um, you can randomly pick three out of a big number and be much more likely to get an oddball panel of three than if you're picking three out of a smaller number like 10, like on the other circuits. And so not only can you find an oddball district court judge through forum shopping, but you got a good chance of getting an oddball three-judge panel just by random chance in the Ninth Circuit, a better chance there than other circuits. And then the solution to the problem of an oddball three-judge panel, if you're on the other side of the case, is you call for en banc rehearing. In every other circuit in America, en banc rehearing means the entire circuit, all active judges hear the en banc rehearing. The Ninth Circuit is so big, they can't do it. So they do a randomly selected 11-judge panel. We could have six oddballs on the 11-judge panel, and therefore you end up with an oddball outcome in the Ninth Circuit. And, and it's a problem. Uh, that's why the Ninth Circuit is reversed so much by the U.S. Supreme Court. It's not just because they're liberal. There's been some great work by some political scientists on this, and they've shown that even counting the Ninth Circuit's ideology, they're still reversed 10 more times a year than they should be. And it's because they have so many judges, they can't go en banc, and they end up with weirdo en banc rehearings. Wow. Wow. That is, I mean, what you're telling me, it doesn't even sound partisan. I mean, obviously, conservatives have their gripes with the Ninth Circuit, but just just out of a fairness point, it makes no sense. You're telling me that they control such a large geographical area. Um, so to begin with, they gobble up so many states and so such a large population. But then also you could have you know, an anomalous group that just thinks there's a right to immigrate where you know the majority of judges wouldn't say that. You'll see from the Supreme Court they wouldn't rule that way, but you're more likely to get that panel – my question to you is, do you think you're going to see just kind of horse race here from someone like a Clarence Thomas and Alito? Do you think that they're going to use their circuit assignments more aggressively than in the past to maybe use the prerogative as an individual justice to shut down some of this, some of these kind of far out there injunctions from, let's say, the Ninth Circuit, depending on who takes that over? You know, I'll, I'll tell you in my experience, and, you know, I, I clerked on the court several years ago now, and so maybe things have changed a little bit, but in my experience, the justices are reluctant to act as a one-person circuit justice to grant much in the way of emergency relief. They, they usually refer anything that would be the least bit uh, controversial or contentious to the full court. And so I think it's going to be hard for a circuit justice to play much of a role besides forwarding on to his colleagues motions that are filed with him or her and then making a recommendation that maybe the motion should be granted. But 
in, in my experience, they are reluctant to act on their own. Yeah, I mean that, that that's definitely what it what it seems. Um, but my my concern was, you know, just watching someone like Thomas, who's clearly agitated by the universal injunctions, clearly sees what's going on. I really wonder if, since he's the senior justice now, if Roberts would have signed the Ninth Circuit. Right now, he temporarily took it over, but once Kavanaugh presumably gets on the court, if Thomas would now have the circuit assignment over the ninth, um, if we if we'd see that, because it's like what you mentioned before that again, right now from a conservative perspective, we're caught in this rubber band effect where the the lower courts, at least the ones that are being shopped to, are very far out there, making very very earth-shattering opinions, particularly on settled immigration law, you know, plenary power doctrine. You know the Supreme Court wouldn't do it, but because of the conservatism of the Supreme Court, meaning the cautious nature, and I think what's understood particularly about Chief Justice Roberts, that he doesn't want to be seen as getting involved too much, but isn't the problem that the lower courts are the ones doing the involvement. We're just kind of asking the Supreme Court to, you know, get them off. But we're going to be caught holding the bag from the lower courts without the relief from the Supreme Court. So, I mean, do you see any other remedy? Well, I, I think the remedy is with Congress and reforming the lower court powers and structures. Because if you're hoping the Supreme Court is going to cor- catch and correct all of the mistakes the lower courts make, you're going to be very disappointed. The court does not have the resources to do that. Even if they did hear twice as many cases, it'd be hard for them to do that. And uh, they just don't have the uh, attitude to to be that uh, interventionist. And, you know, there's a famous quote that one of the uh, former Ninth Circuit judges made to the Wall Street Journal uh, several years ago, Judge Stephen Reinhardt, he died not too long ago, but he was the most unabashed about his power as a court of appeals judge that I think I've ever come across. (laughs) And he told the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, the Supreme Court can't catch them all. (laughs) That was his attitude. Oh, my gosh, I love that. His attitude was, yeah, I want to do what I want to do because I can't catch them all. It reminds me of what I saw from an ACLU judge. He said, quote, let, I mean, rough, it's a rough quote, let a thousand immigration lawsuits blossom. (laughs) No, I mean, I think that's the truth. And I just think that's why the solution is to split up the Ninth Circuit into two smaller courts where oddball judges can't end up in a majority of a panel or en banc decision. And it's why Congress needs to do something saying district court judges can't enter these universal injunctions. I just don't think the Supreme Court can do it all. No, for sure. I know we're running out of time. I took a lot of your your time. You've been very generous here. One last question. You've written a lot, and I'm actually going through some of your writings on just the history of the state courts. It's very fascinating. A lot of people don't know much about state courts. Um, You see most of them in most states are elected in some sort of way, or they have retention ballots. And I could say in Maryland, even the most politically astute human beings around know nothing about who they are, what they are, because they don't deal with any of the important issues. Like, you know, maybe real estate de- developers know who these guys are. Um, do you think there's a case to be made for making state courts great again, maybe devolving some of this subject matter jurisdiction 
to the state courts, did our fi- founders have in mind that the state courts would deal with more of, more than what they're dealing with today? Well, there's no doubt about it that the founding generation thought the state courts would have a very big role because many of the founders didn't even want to create lower federal courts at all. That's why the Constitution left it up to Congress, because the, the folks that framed the Constitution were split. Some people wanted lower courts, some people didn't want any lower courts. And so there was a lot of uh, regard uh, for the state courts at the time. In many ways, the federal courts were modeled on the state courts. Most of the state judges had uh, life tenure and, and the same characteristics that the federal judiciary ended up with in the Constitution. But even though the federal courts are taking a lot of cases, the state courts still decide the vast majority of cases. And the state Supreme Courts, um, they have incredible power to say what the state constitutions mean. You know, my state of Tennessee, until we pass a constitutional amendment to overturn it, our state Supreme Court several years ago decided that the Tennessee Constitution protected abortion rights even more than the federal constitution. So Tennessee couldn't have hardly any restrictions on abortion, even though lots of other states could, because our Tennessee Supreme Court said the Tennessee Constitution meant something different than the federal constitution. So the state courts have a lot of power over what the constitutions mean. And so I I think that we should be paying attention to them because they have just as much power in many ways as the federal courts do. And they get to exercise the power in many, many more cases. Yeah. So, I mean, I think they'd be well suited that if we're going to have, you know, we're a very litigious society and we seem to just put finality of issues in courts, at least put it in the ones that are more elected. I I know this has worked um, with Iowa. Um, Iowa Supreme Court justices, uh, you know, mandated gay marriage in Iowa last decade. They threw out three of them. And, you know, that's where it, the, the system, in my view, kind of worked. So I was just wondering, in these cases, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, we don't want to bring politics into the courts. But like you're saying, they already decide a lot of issues, and the federal courts are already political, albeit we don't have the um, electoral uh, tool of redressability. So, yeah, why not, you know, at least send some of this back to the courts? So just to make it clear, what you're saying is if Congress would say, all right, The lower federal courts cannot um, hear cases pertaining to immigration, election law, whatever. It would just go to state court. That's correct. And you're absolutely right. State court judges nowadays are selected and retained very different from federal judges. Even though at the time of the founding, everyone basically followed the same model, political appointment with life tenure, the states have now all abandoned life tenure, and most of them elect their judges in some way. It makes the judges more accountable to the people. And um, for that reason, uh, it's not quite as a thumb in the eye to have state judges kind of having the final say on these issues as is with federal judges who were not elected and served for life. There's really no way to get rid of them short of impeachment, and that's very extreme. So state judges are thought to be more accountable to the public than the federal judges are. That has pluses and minuses, but for some of these issues, it may be a plus. No, for sure. And, and to speak to the abortion issue, like you said, it's funny how a lot of people are saying, oh, Trump's going to pack the Supreme Court. We're going to lose the right to abortion. It's funny hearing what you just said from Tennessee, which would be one of the states where you think you know would be pretty restrictive 
um, if you repealed Roe v. Wade. But, you know, no, I mean, it goes to the states and the state legislatures would control it, but not just the legislatures. You're saying um, the state Supreme Courts as well. And in some cases, they've already preempted it until states act upon it. That's right. Exactly right. Wow. So a, a, a lot going on here. The lower courts really need to be reformed. Ninth Circuit needs to be split. This this universal injunction stuff is wacko. I could speak to you forever, but I want you to get back to your vacation. Would you be willing to come back again? Sure thing, Daniel. Anytime. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Professor Brian Fitzpatrick. And I'm just so glad we were able to finally you know, find a real scholarly legal academic to have on this show um, just so you hear it from someone else, I, I spoke with him briefly last week, but you know, I never even got into this point. And I'm so glad we we stumbled upon it. If you caught what he said, there was a lot of important things, but I think the most important thing was what he meant when he said, "If you're hoping that the Supreme Court's going to catch all the mistakes of the lower courts, you're you're really going to be disappointed." I mean, this is a thesis I put out, and I've really gone on, gone out on a limb, and a lot of conservative legal people, libertarian legal legal people laugh at me. Oh, what are you talking about? We're winning the Supreme Court. There might even be another vacancy or two. We're going to crush it. And what they don't understand is a conservative Supreme Court, well, it's conservative in two ways, assuming it really is conservative, um, you know, in that it's conserves, it's cautious. So if you have a thousand insane lower court opinions shutting down our nation, shutting down our economy, you know, budget, immigration, election law, you're, you're never going to end, you know, and it, it, it's worse than that. And, and, and I'm glad he's one of these guys that actually sees it. A lot of these people don't get it. They don't understand the broader dangers of what's happening um, in the courts. And I, look, I would have loved to have him for longer, but I know he was on vacation there, you know, and, and I would argue just one one point to make it a little bit worse, you know, he was saying that, you know, this goes back and forth depending on which administration's in power. But I would argue it, you know, even when a Democrat is in power, you have a lot of this problem with the states. You know, with with Republican legislatures in the states we control. You know, this happened throughout Obama's tenure, the Fourth Circuit and the like going after North Carolina. Every single thing they want to do gets shut down. Every single thing. I mean, this stuff is earth-shattering. No, the Supreme Court would never do it. And I would argue in some of these cases, even people like Breyer and Kagan wouldn't necessarily originally do it. And notice what he said. The Supreme Court likes this stuff to percolate. But once it percolates, it gains an aura of legitimacy. See, that theory of allowing things to percolate was good when the courts were acting properly, staying within their jurisdiction. They were dealing only with nerdy, very deep and complex questions that aren't broadly politically consequential. So let it stew. Let's see what the Fifth Circuit says. Let's see what the Ninth Circuit says. And then we'll render our opinion. So it's going to take a while. But when you have lower courts just shutting down our country, then you have an obligation, if you believe in Supreme Court supremacy, to get involved. And if they're not, anyway, Congress should get involved. And, you know, this has been our our point forever. But this is why I've been telling you if you would just kick the lower courts out of this, 
not even the Supreme Court, you would solve 99% of the problems because then the passivity of the Supreme Court, particularly with a better balance like we're likely to have, will, will serve in our favor. You know, because it gets even worse than the Supreme Court not taking it up. There are times where the Supreme Court, because even the conservative justices, each one in his own sphere of law, has his own quirks joining with the left for different reasons, that they would probably never initially accept such a lawsuit. But once it's there, they're not going to overturn. And this gets back to what I keep harping on with Gorsuch joining the four leftists, where even Kennedy and Roberts were on the right side, in Demaya v. Sessions with this crime of violence thing. Where you now have hundreds of the most violent people. Again, usually they're arrested for armed robbery, burglary, um, assault, but then they plead down to things that aren't directly in the enumerated part of the statute, and they're in the residual clause of you know this delegated authority to the executive branch to deport anyone convicted of a crime of violence. But it's so hard to land a conviction, and I'm going to link to in show notes our piece out today with this Colorado Iraqi refugee, and, and you know, um, almost killing, and I mean, he's still in critical condition. This Colorado Springs cop, um, it's really the amalgamation of criminal justice deform and criminal alien laws. It's a whole velocity of leniency in our criminal justice system that you have people that are forever caught by the cops but they can't land a conviction because they plead down and you know you and i if we get in trouble it's like forget it we're gonna have to spend a fortune on a good lawyer or never have the money somehow these poor schnooks whether they're illegals or these refugees that supposedly don't have a penny to their name they all have these amazing lawyers that know how to plead down in the right way to get just below the threshold of deportation. So basically, this was a guy that was convicted on crime of violence and Obama wanted to deport him, but then after the ninth and 10th Circuit said, oh no, it's unconstitutional, they let him go. And then even after that, he committed more crimes, assault, firearms violations that actually would, even after DeMaio, would be make him deportable. But the problem was, I mean, he wasn't convicted, he was arrested, but he pled down. And, and he kept committing crimes up until last week when he shot this uh, police officer in the head. So, yeah, now he'll finally be deported after a lengthy trial that could go on for who knows how long. But the only way to make it work is getting them before, and the courts are preventing this. So that's another stink bomb from Gorsuch, and don't think you're, you're not going to have this from other so-called conservative justices. The left, the ACLU, they're really good at making these arguments and finding that the Supreme Court is going to be reluctant to overturn a lot of them. And even the ones they overturn aren't really overturned because they just come back for a second, um, you know, a second bite at the apple. So, um, you know, that's that's the story. This is just very, very, um, very disturbing. Um, and I don't know. You'll, you'll, you'll let me know what you think. And let me know if you have any other ideas of who you, who you want me to have on the show. But I think, you know, my, my goal is to have more, you know, law professors that get it. And there are, there are those out there. I'm finding more and more of them. Um, 
but this guy is a real, real deep uh, reservoir of knowledge on a lot of this stuff, and um, I'm really gonna draw upon his knowledge. Of, you know, stay in touch with him because uh, look, I, I I need ideas. I need better ideas. But like I told you before, you know, at some point, it's not a matter of an idea. You don't need some fancy legislative stratagem to get around a district judge saying the Constitution is unconstitutional. You know what I mean? Like at some point, you just got to assert yourself. And if you're not willing to do it, then no amount of legislative remedy will help anyway because frankly, like I've noted several recent cases, indeed there already is legislation kicking the courts out of that particular issue, preventing them from hearing that case, and they hear it anyway. So that's the story with that. You know, literally, as I'm talking now, I'm just reading another article. Court grants Mexican mother power to sue in U.S. court um, over cross-border shooting. Federal appeals court ruled Tuesday that a Mexican woman could get access to U.S. courts to sue a border patrol agent for killing her son in a cross-border shooting in a decision that expands foreigners' ability to push back against growing border enforcement. Immigration activists had been closely watching this case, calling it a major test of whether people outside the U.S. could claim constitutional rights to punish government officials inside the U.S. Um, and this is the Ninth Circuit they're talking about, of course. Uh, we'll we'll have more on this. I just I can't even breathe. I'm so pissed off. But um, wow, yeah. I mean, this is this is where it's at. This is where it's at. I'm just trying to send emails now furiously. I wasn't planning on talking about this. I mean, that's how pervasive this is. Every five minutes, another case like this comes up. I mean, it's just it's just pure nutso. It's just totally nuts. But um, anyway, also I want to talk about at some point Andy Biggs has a bill out. Beautiful bill. To pay for the border wall by cutting $2,000 of aid for every illegal that's apprehended from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and also um, raising just certain fees, which we should. You know, there's I-94 applications where you could expedite your travel into America. You know, it's six bucks. I mean, people pay an enormous amount. You know, why not raise the fee to $25? Um, and then several other things, cutting back on remittances. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is something that's not going to see the light of day until we have better leadership in the House. Um, but that's, yeah, I mean, that's where we are. This is where we are. And uh, I, I'm just at a loss of words. The, be the best I can do is present to you the best um, facts, some of the best guests on this. But ultimately, we're a self-governing people. And if we're going to allow a Ninth Circuit to say people could invade our country, endanger us, and then sue law enforcement and border agents for doing their job, and if one of their people get killed, whether it was truly an innocent or not, doesn't matter in this case. It's not our fault. It's very likely it wasn't innocent. This is purely nuts. And you're seeing... A number of polls Gallup Axis has out. Um, immigration is rocketing to the top issue of this election. 
This is why Trump needs to force a budget fight to demand court reform, sanctuary cities, the wall, asylum, UAC stuff that has to be in the budget bill. Period. Period. That has to be in the budget bill. But anyway, man, am I upset. Wow. And then, I mean, you have another case of stolen sovereignty where the left is saying, how dare Stephen Miller push an effort to block citizenship for immigrants on welfare? I thought immigrants can't get welfare. It's funny how they like to play both sides and say, these are the wealthiest, most fertile, uh, most entrepreneurial spirit, spirit around. We're going to lose so much GDP if we don't have record immigration. Oh, okay, so then you shouldn't have any problem just ensuring none of them are on welfare. No, you can't do that. Oh. Meanwhile, this was deeply rooted in our history and tradition since our colonial times. We had public charge laws. Stolen sovereignty. That is the biggest problem we have now. Stolen sovereignty and all its analogs. Anyway, as always, support our sponsors, Purple Mattresses. Go to purple.com to get your discounted mattress with a free purple pillow, scientifically made with the highest degree of comfort as well as firmness. You will not have a sore back anymore. You will not toss and turn at night. Um, issue promo code Daniel to get a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not satisfied, you could return it for free, free shipping, free refunds. If you are satisfied, it's backed by a 10-year warranty. Go to purple.com, issue promo code Daniel. Get your good night's sleep with Purple Mattresses. And until next time, God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.